Welcome to the Power in the Pandemic podcast. But it's at the heart of what my theory of change is, that if we want to move away from systems of violence, we have to reimagine a world that centers care. Hi, everyone. Happy New Year. This is Maria, your host. I'm really glad you could tune into this episode, which is our first episode of 2021 and the last episode of the Climate, COVID and Care series that started last year. In this series, we featured the voices and ideas of some incredible feminist climate justice activists and advocates. Betty from Fiji, Hindu from Chad, Mahandra from Peru, and Maggie from Zimbabwe. And in this final episode today, you'll hear from Mira Ghani from Pakistan. Mira is a climate justice activist, anti-racist, and anti-capitalist feminist and abolitionist who worked in the climate justice movement for many years before leaving after experiencing violence, a lack of care, and burnout. Now Mira works to support community initiatives with Ecolese and co-founded the Moxie Consultancy Collective to help organizations create transformative change through building a culture of care. I've encountered Mira's name and work across many different spaces, as she's one of the leading voices in promoting the cultural shifts necessary to center care and the sustenance of life within our spaces of social action. The ground is now very fertile to put care at the center of our post-pandemic world, which faces multiple and intersecting crises, which we've talked about in our previous episodes, including climate breakdown and continuing gender-based violence. As we navigate the start of 2021, on the back of such a turbulent 2020, this conversation only continues to gain relevance and value. So let's start off by listening to Mira talk a little bit about her own journey that took her from her economics degree and career to becoming a climate justice activist and an advocate for building caring systems. Remember that you can find links to Mira's work and initiatives that she's part of at the bottom of the episode description. Um, I was studying economics and it just didn't make sense to me to just purely focus on kind of micro and macro economics without considering um, the kind of extractive nature of our economies. And so I started digging more into the questions of how um, our systems and how the economies have an impact on the environment, which coming from a scientific background, so it led me to focus on emissions, car uh, carbon emissions and greenhouse gas emissions. And so I did a lot of work with NGOs on very kind of technical issues. But then I realized um, that for me, my heart is always being in the moment, being on the streets, calling for justice. And so um, even within those organizations, I kind of always pushed for the narrative of justice to be there. And yeah, and it's been a part of my activist journey ever since. Pakistan, where Mira comes from, is facing a set of dire consequences due to the climate crisis. In the report for 2020, Pakistan came in fifth place on the Global Climate Risk Index of countries most vulnerable to climate change, which is an index analyzing the extent to which countries and regions have been affected by impacts of weather-related events, such as storms, floods, heat waves, and droughts. And the country's vulnerability to climate change is increasing. So now let's turn back to Mira as she shares some particular forms of climate injustice in Pakistan, as well as its effects on farming communities. Well, there are many, especially within some of the mountain ranges and where our water sources are from. 
there's a direct impact on the water sources and the glacial melt and the kind of impact it has on fresh water and the availability of it. And of course, it's the Pakistan-India-Kashmir conflict that has to do with a lot of that. And against violence is impacting how our climate is then changed and how the environment changes. And then there's lots of drought in certain regions. There is a lot of erratic, of course, weather patterns. Um, there's a lot of seasonal shifts. The monsoons have shifted. So it's very difficult for communities that rely on agriculture to sustain themselves. And it's also had an impact on livestock, of course, with the onslaught of all these types of diseases because of the average temperature increasing. It's made life very difficult for small-scale holder uh, farmers. It's made life very difficult for those depending on livestock. It's made life very difficult for those who um, depend on their natural environment to sustain themselves. How have people organized themselves in reaction to this panorama? Mira mentions that though there are some groups which organize around particular issues, such as smog and air pollution, there are some big disconnects between urban and rural issues and agendas, as well as between local and global levels of advocacy. I guess it depends. It's not, you wouldn't call it a big climate movement as such, because like I said, people focus on different aspects of environmental degradation or climate. But recently there's been a huge movement after Fridays for Future on air quality and air pollution. And um, I think there's an organization called Climate Action, PK, and I think they're on Twitter, that's been doing a lot of campaigning around the smog levels (laughs) in our cities, which are horrendous. I mean, it's unbreathable air. And that's, again, to do with industrialization and so many other things. And then there have been uh, lots of movements around what people find to be easy solutions. So tree plantations or replanting mangroves or, you know, reforestation. So they've been those kinds of movements. But when it comes to really local communities, for them, it's really about uh, more sovereignty over how they kind of farm which has been impacted globally through the Green Revolution and Monsanto and all of that. So um, there are different desperate movements, but um, I haven't seen it come all together. And, and I guess in a country like Pakistan, because there's so many things happening at the same time, it's difficult to bring attention to these things, which may not directly impact urban populations. And a large majority of Pakistan is within the urban centers. And because of political turmoil, it's hard. But there are smaller communities, I mean, fisherfolk communities and little communities that keep bringing attention to that. Here's where the discussion broadens out to the complexity of tackling the climate crisis and the need to reflect on what Mir and others in the climate justice space have called climate equity. To put it really straightforward, equity is about fairness. But this is absolutely not simple when it comes to thinking about climate solutions because of elements as complex and huge as global economic inequalities and climate debt, which Mira explains as a historical responsibility that some industrial nations have at the cost of others. I found it absolutely relevant and crucial that Mira brings up economic elements such as the redistribution of wealth as key to addressing equity, something which I think gets lost when looking at particular environmental effects of climate breakdown. Let's hear Mira delving into this. So equity within the climate framing means looking at the historical responsibilities that some nations have had, looking at the impact of colonization 
um, and the impact it, ha it has had on communities or the global majority in the global south. It means looking at the way resources are distributed, the way resources are extracted and redistributed. Um, so a lot of the issues aren't that there are lack of resources whether those are natural resources or monetary resources or whether it's um, food systems and food production. It's about how resources are controlled and distributed. So for me, one of the radical things that need to shift or need to happen is redistribution and the shift in power. Redistribution of wealth is a major, major element when it comes to addressing equity. It's not just about, oh, these accumulated emissions. Because for me, climate justice is more about looking at how the emissions land, uh, align and land up and what the carbon budget is. It's about, again, coming back to the extractive, exploitive nature of the systems we have in place. And for now, um, because of inequity, all the resources, all the monetary value, all the wealth has been siphoned off and being hoarded by a select few. So for me, the long struggle has been to center equity and justice within the movement. There's such a pushback against that because the majority of the movement focuses on emissions and how to control those. And then a little group focuses on adaptation and then even a smaller group focuses on climate finance, and then the smallest group focuses on loss and damage. But it's still within the context of how it's defined within the UN framework. Everything else in between gets missed. The impact on queer communities gets missed. The impact on black bodies gets missed. The impact on dis the disabled. That has been such a struggle to get even the understanding of how climate breakdown is impacting the disabled community, there's no recognition of that. Then getting people to recognize the misogyny that exists within the movement. Ultimately, the climate crisis exposes the violence of our societies. I'm really glad Mira turned her gaze toward a more systemic view of the crisis and placed importance on the extractive and exploitative nature of the systems that we have in place. This really resonates with what other speakers have spotlighted in this Climate, COVID, and Care series, such as the key climate justice slogan that Mahandra brought up in her episode, which reads, System change, not climate change. And unless we focus on systemic change, this violence will continue to be reproduced inside of our spaces of action, be it NGOs, grassroots movements, or government institutions. Mira here reminds us that it's about changing the logics and the culture that reproduce these violent systems, toward ones that sustain life in all of its forms. So I always give this quote by a Black feminist author that I love, Sadia Hartman. And the quote is that the antidote to violence is care. And that's my whole framing. And I always quote that because it's at the heart of, like, it couldn't have been said more simply, but it's at the heart of what my theory of change is, that if we want to move away from systems of violence, we have to reimagine a world that centers care. And that's why I keep pushing for culture of care, because for me, care isn't just about interpersonal care. It's about the systems we create. It's about how we integrate it into our policies, how we live out and practice care. And I, I think the reason for me leaving the climate movement was also this lack of care and the violence I experienced within the movement. So the violence I experienced as a person from the global south, 
the violence I experienced as a woman, as a woman of color. Also someone, I guess, trying to operate within a very white middle class movement. And the violence was, I mean, I mean, it's anywhere from between uh, being disregarded and some of your ideas being co-opted to threats of rape and death. So it's a whole spectrum that I uh, kind of received an onslaught of. Just going back to care, it's really a lot to do with relational work. So relationship with ourselves. I really, truly believe, and I'll quote uh, Grace Lee Boggs, um, an activist from Detroit, that we can't transform, change the world unless we transform, change ourselves. So for me, it's a lot about the inner transformation. And if we're really serious about transforming the world, we need to go through this phase of inner transformation and then transformation at a community level and then whatever change we're pushing for. Care comes at the relation level, relationship with ourselves, relationship with our communities, and then relationship with the environment we're in. Whether we look at the environment as bioregions or we look at it as nation states, which I don't agree with, whatever our definition. So for me, it's coming into the right relationship with ourselves, with those around us, and with the spaces we occupy. Um, and, and I guess a lot of this comes from. Um, existing ancestor knowledge from indigenous knowledge um, you know a lot of the knowledge that's been erased which isn't considered knowledge because it's not objective scientific the erasure of that has led us here because had we stayed in the right relationship with where we live and those around us we wouldn't be here so you know like i said capitalism white supremacy patriarchy has led us here which kind of frame everything around scarcity fear separation, isolation. And so the culture of care is really in opposition to all of that. It's about abundance that exists between us and in nature. It's about approaching everything from a place of love. It's about interbeing, interconnection, interdependence. It's about cooperation, collaboration. It's about regeneration. So it sets in opposition to everything that we are experiencing within the world. Care is essentially the sustenance of life, and it's not new to us. It is a priority that we can rescue from other systems of knowledge and cultures that have preserved it all along. What Mira is saying reminds me of a really important question put forward by Lolita Chavez, who's a Guatemalan human rights activist and environmental defender, which I think we should be asking ourselves perhaps more, and it's the following. What gives us life? And the ways in which we frame and narrate these priorities is a good starting point when it comes to rethinking our systems and building kinder futures. But I'm guessing some questions might be coming up for you, as well as for me, around responsibility and whose duty all of this befalls. Is it entirely on us? What about the state and government institutions? It takes me back to a question raised in a previous set of PowerShifts resources that I compiled on well-being and development, which you can find in the episode description as well. And that's the question of, is well-being political? Let's turn back to Mira as she explores a bit of this. And so for me, care is really about that. And so community care is a big aspect of it. And then there's structural elements of it. Anything that can't be cared for within the community is something that the state is then responsible for. For example, instituting universal health care, instituting a universal basic income, you know, abolishing state militaries. 
abolishing borders. These are some of the political questions that, of course, communities can push for. But as long as we have representation through governments, there is a role for the state to play in how it provides care to those it represents and its citizens. So there are different elements of care. And for me, again, it's from the logic of separation, logic of fear, logic of extractivism, logic of exploitation. If people care about each other, how are you going to exploit them? So um, it's about creating these divisions that lead to people individualizing each situation and problem. Yeah, it's the capitalist narrative, right? It's the narrative of capitalism. Uh, Success is defined in certain terms where it has monetary value, where it's about popularity, it's about productivity. How much, how prolifically are you producing? And producing from whom? You know, who's consuming all of that? And consumerism also is the same logic where you're just constantly producing and not kind of slowing down to see what the impacts are. It's really about kind of disentangling. And that's why I say narrative is so important because right now we frame everything within a certain narrative. And that's why decolonizing our mind is a part of getting to a place where we center care again. The moment that we find ourselves in amid the COVID-19 pandemic has been a prime opportunity to really think about what care looks like in practice. For many, it is neighbors, networks, and communities, or mutual aid groups sustaining them during these times. But it is also the care and support infrastructure of society, including well-protected labor rights, a welfare safety net, a resilient and well-funded public health system. In a moment such as this, Care can look like harm reduction and community resilience in the face of amplified inequalities. And the still-unfolding COVID-19 crisis is already remaking our sense of the possible. I think what came across with, during COVID is because everyone had to go into lockdown in a lot of places, it brought attention to a lot of the asks that the disability justice groups have been asking for, like remote working. A lot of the care workers have been asking for increased in wages because their work is essential. It brought attention to things like um, the EU saying, oh, our budgets are immovable. And once it's decided this is what we do, but now they're kind of reopening all of their negotiations and looking at recovery packages and looking at just recovery packages. So whatever that means, it's a broad attention to things that we thought were impossible, like instituting universal basic income or conversations about universal health care and how that should be done. So everything that we were told that was impossible now seems to be a possibility. It's brought up conversations together with the uprisings in the U.S. around abolition. People have been working on abolition since the dawn of prisons, but now it seems like those conversations could be close to reality. What it also brought home was networks of community care, mutual aid groups. So in the lack of government responses, people came to each other's aid. And that's why I say care is central. Care workers were central, community care was central, mutual aid was central. And for me, that is the way that we can both work on how to move forward from COVID-19 as a pandemic and also um, how to find some of these local contextualized community-led solutions to climate breakdown. The organization that I work with, Ecolise, represents community initiatives and networks across Europe, like eco-villages, transition towns, permaculture. And a lot of these communities have shown a lot of resilience through the pandemic because they um, had already been working on solutions at a local level within their context. They're now working with local governments 
to make sure that this is something that gov local governments understand and make a part of their own policy making and their own processes. And in countries like the US, there are no social protections apart from very limited ones. Um, everyone relies on their own community. Also, we have a lot of learning to do with, of course, from indigenous leaders, but also from black, trans and queer communities, because they have been practicing community care like no other forever. And so we've seen a lot of their own methodologies and approaches come to the fore. Mia Mangus has this pods framework for community care and a lot of mutual aid groups use that as a basis for their work. But there's so many iterations of how communities care for each other. And I think that's central to getting out of the multiple interconnected crises we find ourselves in. Mira mentioned the POTS framework, which refers to the intimate networks that people turn to before turning to external state or social services. Asking people to organize their POD is a much more concrete place to start, rather than asking them to organize an entire neighborhood, community, or even city. The pandemic and climate breakdown are intersecting, and they're crises that strip away the bandage of societal wounds that we have normalized. We're able to grasp just how much more interconnected we are than our brutal economic system allows us to believe. So this takes us back to what was said earlier around climate equity, realizing that the same structural violence that underpins climate injustice is also what exposes the most vulnerable parts of our society to the highest risk and the harshest effects of this COVID-19 pandemic. The victims and costs of both crises overlap. So just in terms of why they're intersecting. So they're intersecting because uh, we know now from uh, some studies and also experiences of people that like climate breakdown, COVID mostly impacts brown and black communities within the global north. But now because of many issues, it's been the same iterations in the global south. And I think when we understand the intersectional analysis, when we analyze with an intersectional lens, then the solutions we come up with will be intersectional too. For me, the focus always have to, it has to be the most marginalized communities, the most marginalized and excluded communities within any group, nation, society. So if we start from that focus, where we focus on those who are most marginalized and excluded and then work outwards, then our solutions will be intersectional and will be equitable. Equity is a large part of this. And for me, care doesn't happen without equity and intersectionality and justice. Care is what justice can look like in a particular moment and context. The skewed priorities of our system exemplified by the hesitation from politicians on whether to preserve lives or the status quo, have rarely been so starkly exposed. And I'm always left thinking about what hope can drive us. Which narratives can we start shifting? And what can a care-centered economy and system look like? So to round off this really juicy episode with Mira, let's listen to her final words on what kinds of actions, policies, and ideas can underpin a transition towards a culture of care. If I'm talking in terms of policy ramifications, for me, the kind of five steps are, first would be divesting from institutions and corporations that are life-threatening, that are killing the planet, killing the people, because we know that fossil fuel industry has a whole militia, military aspect, and um, a lot of people have died because of their need to control resources. 
um, and it's um, reinvesting in communities, institutions, and organizations that are life affirming, that are doing life affirming work. And then it's at the heart of it, and this is where equity plays a large role, is kind of decolonizing hearts and minds. So that understanding that it's not a pie, a limited pie that we must distribute in a certain way. And that if you don't get this much share of the pie, then, you know, it's about decolonizing how we understand resources, how we understand abundance, getting away from this scarcity mentality and not putting the blame on things like population growth, which really does my head in because it's so racist. And then uh, it is redistribution of wealth and resources in a fundamentally different way. The last one, which I forgot to mention, was degrowth in the northern economies. So yeah, the, in just in order, it would be divestment, degrowth, decolonization, and redistribution and reinvestment. You've been listening to the mini-series on climate, COVID, and care in partnership with the zine with the same title. It has been wonderful to hear insights from these five amazing women. Something that all of them have pointed towards is how the effects caused by the COVID-19 pandemic, climate change, and gender-based violence all stem from the same root. And overcoming them means confronting the root cause, which is a violent economic model. Listen and re-listen to these episodes to hear their pointers toward more caring realities. You can find a link to the zine and more about Mira and her work in the episode description. You can also find links to two PowerShift's resource compilations on care and well-being and development that might be relevant for you as follow-up reading. Make sure you subscribe on your favorite streaming platform. Stay tuned and follow us on Instagram at PowerShift's Project. Thanks for listening. <laughs>